Welcome to Life List, a birding podcast. Hello, hello. We are Life List, a birding podcast. I'm George Armistead. I am here with my, well, with one of my co-hosts today, Alvaro Jaramillo. Alvaro, what are you doing, man? Hello, how you doing? I'm I'm sitting here looking out the window at house finches today. House finches? Not, yeah, it's not the most exciting, but you can learn a lot by looking at house finches. You know, for sure. I was thinking, and I think Molly raised this idea at one point, that at some point, I think we should do an episode where where we sit someplace and record with a view and each keep an eBird list as we're oh, yeah. as we're recording and and then compare notes. I feel like you right now at least would be at a distinct advantage as I my my recording area here at home is located in my basement and I do have a window and I can look at some wildflowers and I yes yesterday I did have a nice chipping sparrow feeding right outside my window here and I can see house sparrows and song sparrows occasionally and during migration I even do better than that sometimes um but I know what your setup is like there and uh uh-huh. You know, you even get prairie falcon on uh, on odd occasions while we're recording. So, well, once, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, once I know, but it's a hell of a good bird. Yeah, it is for the coast. It is. It's definitely. That, I think that was. Yeah, that was my yard first. That prairie falcon. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I remember seeing my yard first ferruginous hawk while I was talking to a friend. You know, look, looking at the the backyard. So that was good. You know, and it's, it's starting to get hot. I was on the phone once with, uh, with Adam Riley. And all of a sudden I was like, dude, I'm, I'm looking at a black billed cuckoo right here, backyard. And that was downtown <laughs> Philly. You know, that was like, you know, urban, urban condo days. Um, not much vegetation around, but you know, some, some, uh, Asian mulberry, but yeah, it was just enough for that black-billed cuckoo that day. That was a good one. Do you know that um, black-billed cuckoo is is one of the – I mean, there's a couple of eastern birds that just sort of never get to the west, like really, really rare, even though they're not that extremely rare in the east. Like black-billed mm-hmm. cuckoo is one of them. I know. Um, I know the, the Montana folks get very, very excited if a black-billed cuckoo becomes – like I guess it happens there – in kind of spring, early summer, sometimes and yeah. people people get people get hype when those things show. And yeah, the other one, of course, is redheaded woodpecker, which there was uh, one in San Francisco that caused a stir recently. But it's another one, you know, like it just doesn't. You know, there's probably way more Lewis's woodpeckers going east and redheaded's going west. Yeah. But still, obviously, uh, I don't know. I don't know what you mean by east, but there are still relatively few Lewis's woodpeckers in the east, but probably still way more than redheads. Yeah, yeah. So, did you know this? Okay, this is kind of a mind blower. Riddle me this, Alvaro. Riddle me this. Yeah, if you if you take passerine birds and you divide them up into the nine primaried or ten primaried. The Ossines and the Subossines? No, 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 uh, no, because um, those are within the Ossines nine oh, and right. ten primary 
right, right, right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Sorry. So, but I mean, it could, actually, any pastoring. Let's just it's we're blowing it up to any okay. pastoring wide I open. Think, I think all all sub Aussies have ten. Some Aussies, like you know the the singing birds, the, the sort of warblers, whatever, all that. Some of them have nine. Some of them have ten. If you if you just se- separate them on nine and ten, ten primaried passerines are much less likely to end up as vagrants on the west coast as opposed to nine primaried birds. Huh. So eastern flycatchers, those are ten, and like thrushes, you know um, that you know great cheek thrush, veery much less so than warblers, you know, and, and other migratory birds, you know, that, that have nine primaries. Not weird. That is weird. And I, and I thought, is it the primaries or is it the fact that some of those tens are harder to identify like a, a veery, great cheek thrush, or, you know, all the fly, fly under the radar, all fly under the radar. Yeah. So, it's either something different or, in fact, it's a call to action to learn your tar- 10 primary Aussie identification. I like this. <laughs> I like this challenge. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I've, I don't know how f- far into it you can go f- beyond that. And, and some people say, oh, yeah, but there's a lot less 10 primary Aussie species. So it's kind of skewed. Of course it's skewed. It's a silly it's a, it's a silly thing to be talking about, but it it's there. It's like a pattern. Yeah, I like this. I like. I think this deserves uh, further scrutiny. I would say not less, but I more. Know. Yeah, I know. I like it. And uh, yeah, birds with no primaries, like uh, ostrich, never get anywhere. Very low. <laughs> That's true. Even. Yeah, Very and that, that I feel like that deserves uh, less study, perhaps. Le- than, that deserves less study. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. it's uh it's a little bit more clear cut why we have some good theories as to mm-hmm. why that could be, yeah. You know? yeah. Although you know, like if you back up a bit, like <laughs> taking this silly thing of flightless birds, it it's it's really weird to think that there's flightless related flightless birds in Africa, Australia, South America, right? And they different they didn't swim across. To, to get between those places. So did they all evolve when all those continents were together? Like then Gondwana land. Up. Yeah. Gondwana land birds. I know. Do they, does the timing match, you know, like do Kiwis and all those ratites, what we call them. Um, yeah. Does that, does it match the time that those continents were splitting apart or, or was something else involved? Yeah. <laughs> food for thought food for thought flightless birds mm-hmm. that's a good t-shirt flightless birds they never get anywhere <laughs> they never stray they never stray you can count on flightless birds mm-hmm. don't string flightless birds don't str- yeah yeah it'll really bite you in the butt that's right yeah. Although people do try to count those ostriches that people have in like their fields, you know, yeah. sometimes I've noticed that. I had a buddy who used to work at 
kind of kind of out of touch now, but uh, he worked for the Virginia Department of Game and Fish, and his job part of part of the responsibilities that fell to him were like if kind of non um, like exotic species were turned up someplace, he would have to go corral them. Um, oh wow. And I remember him <laughs> running into him like the day after he'd spent like a morning, like running around trying to capture an, an emu that had escaped in someplace in rural Virginia. And he was like, he was like trying to round up this emu and, and uh, it sounded like. You can get hurt doing that. Yeah, exactly. You could do, man. Those things, you know, they kind of, they kind of creep, they give you the creeps a little bit, you know, they look I you know. right in the eye, you know. He, yeah, but he had I, crazy stuff. Like he had to bust up hot snake joints and stuff like where, you know, they call them hots when the, the illegal trade of, uh, of venomous, well, not necessarily venomous snakes, but, you know, herps and stuff. And I remember him telling me about, you know, having to ex- extract a pair of king cobras from some apartment in Northern Virginia one time that were, they were in a box or whatever, but he had to get them out. And the box was like, you know, too big to, to move the whole thing outside the apartment and and then he had to go in some place they had a big crocodile inside bathtub and gabon viper and you know gabon yeah. viper in some you know box and stuff he had all kinds of stuff he had to to run into you wouldn't believe you know everyone thinks florida's the crazy place but really it's just the united states that's just completely yeah. bonkers you know you see people I, doing I suggest weird stuff. If- if you ever have to really, you know, deal with king cobras, bring an Indian guy with a flute. You know, those guys. Oh, yeah. Seem yeah. to mellow them out big huh. time. All right. You know? yeah. Uh, yeah, just put it in a basket. That's a woven that's basket. A, that's a pro him, tip right there. Right. Sit cross legged in front of the basket with a flute. He just mellows that snake out. Just, you know, Bucks County. I've seen it on here. TV. I want to say it was like. Bucks County, like maybe this is like three years ago. And I want to say it was like there was some dude that got busted for hot snakes and there were cobras and he had like 10 of them or something and it made the news. And then like two, three months later, it was October or November. And there's a story in the paper about a, you know, a little old lady who like looks out her sliding back glass door and sees a cobra trying to like get into her house. And like, huh. if, the, if that had been me, I'd be like scaling the walls, you know, shrieking, you know, like a banshee. I would, I would, I would have had yes. zero composure. She's like, geez, you know, there's a cobra out back. So she, she like just goes out back, gets a shovel and puts the thing out of its misery. And I was like, really? yeah, she just dispatched the thing, you know, I was like, maybe Man. she didn't know any better. Yeah. I, 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 you know, nice, nice. No, I think she said she knew it was a cobra. She just wasn't, huh. you know. She just like managed to keep it together. You know. Wow, that's weird. I was impressed. That, yeah, amazing. Yeah, I mean, I would have, uh, I would have grabbed it and sold it at one of those hot snake things and bought myself a nice car. I, I am not. <laughs> I am not grabbing a garter snake, much less a cobra. No. What a story, though. I know, right? Be a good one to tell your you friends. You did grab it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I think if you grab it in your backyard, you're allowed to sell it. 
that point. Hell, in November, you might be able to grab the thing if it was cold enough. The thing might not be, you know, it's probably why I was trying to get inside. It's pretty, pretty chilly out there. Yeah. yeah. Not Cobra weather, you know. I know. Uh, although it's surprising how, how cold it can get in parts of northern India. And, and It's true, know, yeah. I know that the lowlands, lowlands of Bhutan have, have king cobras, and I was surprised you know i mean how high do they go because those places get cold up there but but maybe there's a big cobra migration you see them all going downhill man that awesome sounds like that a happened. that sounds like an fx movie waiting to be made the cobra migration yeah yeah, yeah. that's right the cobra migration it's definitely not a hallmark movie that's <laughs> unless there's some good looking people that you know the yeah. cobra researcher meets the mm-hmm. you know the, the local vet and uh they all seem to have nice little houses although they have yeah you, sh- you should get right i haven't seen these movies by the I way i think you got to flesh this out i think this <laughs> there's something to it yeah 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 so you know what you know what movie i saw yesterday alvaro barbie barbie bing 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 you got it <laughs> good Went, guess Went and saw Barbie. I felt bad. I was the only one that didn't really dress up. I didn't, I didn't like everybody. Like I I went with my sister, her boyfriend and Kristen, four of us went and, um, yeah, everyone kind of pinked, pinked it up. And I had actually what probably would have been a really, really good outfit, but I just kind of forgot. And then we were in a hurry and then I got there and everybody was all, you know, all pinked out. And I was like, man, I really missed the boat here, but, um, I, you know, pretty good movie. Not, not, not too bad. Not too bad. Yeah. Thinking yeah. of pinked out, you know what I saw today on the, on the Facebook uh, and, oh man, where was this? But it was up North somewhere and a funny looking bird with a kind of pinky orange breast, big bill, some funny stuff going on in the wings. Uh, it was a female red siskin. I saw that. I saw the. Did you not, see that? Yeah, I saw it on. Yeah. I saw it on the Fache book. I saw the. I saw the news, and I was at first. I'm looking at this thing. I'm going, what? Like something is wrong with that. Like that. You know, I think the folks were trying to make it into a gross beak or something, like a fucticus yeah. gross beak. And I was like, that doesn't look right. But I don't know what it is. But then all of a sudden, they someone suggested that, and I was like, ah, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's it's uh, interesting, right? Like, I mean, what what's it doing up there? But it, you know, they're bred with canaries to bring out the red color. Oh, there it is. Uh, it was in Alberta, of all places. I know. Yeah, yeah. I could have. It was there not long ago. Could have. Could have. Could have seen it potentially. Yeah, it's uh, interesting though. You know, um, it it just. Uh, these birds that are definitely not wild like this one, how, how yeah. it got there, you know, from incredibly small range, but I guess they breed them now in, you know, in captivity. So they're probably being bred by the, the canary fanciers. And yeah, they, then they, they breed them with canaries because that, that's how they get that red color and orange and canaries. It's interesting. They're, um, but, uh, they're getting them now a few places, I guess, more regularly than they have been the last few years. Um, oh, you mean like, in the wild, like in their native range? Yeah, yeah, Suriname or Guyana, in the Guyanas, Guyanas. The Guyanas in um, 
in northern Colombia. There's a spot people are seeing them pretty regular. Yeah. Uh, not a bird I've seen. I've been, you know, I've been within their range. There, there's a place when we used to do Venezuela tours, we were, you know, we knew they could be around and we were always on the lookout, but never, never connected. Never connected. Pretty rare. Yeah. 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 Tough bird. Pretty to see rare because people have been taking them from the wild to breed them with canaries. Let's get down to the, the nitty gritty. That's get why down to brass happened. tacks. That's what's happening. Yeah, yeah. It's the people that have driven them out of their, most of their native range. Yeah. People catching them. People catching them. So yeah. we could we could talk Alberta and eagles, or we could talk merlets. What do you want to talk? I think, uh, yeah, we got a really good piece of feedback, uh, which is what you're what you're referring to, right? Because I just I, saw that Alberta, and it started making me think. Yeah, just keeping an Alberta thing. I think I think you're talking sense, Al. I think you're talking sense. Yeah. yeah um, and we should start by, um, yeah, this, this was a, a, an email we received in response to the episode we did on Golden Eagles with Trish Miller. Uh, and it was really great having Trish on. She was super. Uh, and we got a nice message from Caroline Lambert. Caroline? Carolyn or Caroline? Caroline, Caroline Lambert. I know. Yeah. Um, she, and, she used to live around here. We, we used to go birding on the, on the boats and stuff. Very great photographer oh, yeah? Bay area. and so forth and yeah and then she uh, went uh, back to alberta yeah well folks maybe i'll just read a um some of what she wrote us because it was well written and and uh and pretty interesting if if folks were into the golden eagle thing which i think any uh anybody should be by all rights as i said i think we, we i think we all agree golden eagles are pretty fascinating birds um and what Caroline wrote was, I just finished listening to the recent episode on Golden Eagles and have to comment. As Alvaro knows, I am a principal observer with the Eagle Migration Count in Kananaskis. I said that right, right? Yeah. Kananaskis area of the Canadian Rockies, uh, which is, you know, part of where we just were uh, a few short weeks ago. Um, near Banff. Near Banff, idea. right? Yeah. yeah, just out, just out, just outside of Banff, a little ways. Yeah, near near, near uh, Calgary. And uh, she wrote that seventy golden eagles in one day is not that much, actually, um, compared to what they see there. She said that would be a good number for the beginning or the end of our count period there in Kananaskis, uh, but in the couple of weeks around peak migration, we would feel hard done by if we didn't get over 100 eagles in a day. More than 200 would be a good day. The most I have had is 337 in a day, but I've only been doing this for seven years. Our numbers have decreased significantly from around 4,500 per season in the early 90s to about 2,500 now. So in earlier years, they had bigger daily numbers. I don't know what the record is, somewhere around 700 or 800, but we still have more golden eagles pass by us than any other count site. It's hard to describe what it's like to see so many eagles in one day. Simply exhilarating is one way to put it. And uh, she said that um, there's a group that does satellite tracking golden eagles from Montana, the Raptor View Research Institute, um, and that they are able to follow some individuals on their migration route which is really fascinating, um, and uh, and it, that it it does tell them, I guess, that 
individual eagles can take different route each time and do some funny things. Um, she said the Bernheim eagles, I'm not sure where that is, were tagged and tracked, were a real eye-opener. We thought that mated pairs travel together. Whenever we see a pair flying together, following the same trajectory, with one in front occasionally soaring to allow the one behind to catch up, we assume they're a pair um, with the female in front, since in general, eagles don't seem to like each other much. When they get bunched up, usually due to weather, they'll take swipes at each other. So learning that a pair can take completely different paths was interesting. And uh, that was a question, Al, that you had raised. She said, uh, we are a hawk watch because we focus on golden eagles. We start to count after the peak migration in, in fall, uh, p- after pe- peak hawk migration. It's peak time for golden eagles, but... Uh, they're just past peak for most raptors. She said, we get around 80% golden eagles, 10% bald eagles, and 10% everything else split mostly between excipiters. And they get a lot of goshawks and, and buteos. And she said, when we're really lucky, we get jeer falcons, wolves, bears, moose. That's the reward for some sitting out in some really adverse conditions. She said, we're experts on battery-heated socks and gloves. Uh, the eagles are all the more amazing as they're flying along these mountain ridges and temperatures well below freezing. Uh, anyway, thanks, Caroline. That was really, um, I, I, you know, I was blown away by the numbers of that we were discussing with Trish um, at some of the sites here in Pennsylvania. Obviously knew there's a lot more golden eagles out west, but didn't know if there was a site that really was uh, monitoring yeah. these. So those are those are some staggering numbers. Three hundred plus golden eagles in a day, and to think that a couple decades ago it was possible to see seven hundred or eight hundred in a day is just nuts. To some extent, you know, I got to admit that um, I, I feel like this, this is the kind of thing. Well, I'm, I'm glad we're talking about this. Like you know, sort of getting out to to the broad public out there, especially the American public, because there's stuff that happens in Canada sometimes that just doesn't get the traction in the birding world that it would if it happened in the US. Yeah. And it's just the way it is to some extent. There's fewer observers and and maybe um and you know, other other factors involved. But this count was actually um in the old Birders Journal magazine that a lot of for a while had sort of a run of maybe 10 years from it was Canada. a great it was, great publication yeah it it was in there and um they had like a lot of information about about the count and the number of eagles and how staggering it was so this has been known for a long time and it's it's interesting that we still you know the average birder does not know about the numbers that happened there and i one of the things i lots of things i learned from from that note but one of them is the great decrease over time because we were asking about increases decreases in the east and i guess there's just a little less data but this is one solid place where they've been counting in the same way for decades and there's a decrease in golden eagles and it's also the highest numbers of golden eagles going by anywhere so that really is uh troubling and yeah. um the the actual place is called mount lorette if you're ever wanting to sort of go and check it out um and, Better uh, bundle I, up, sounds like. Yeah, bundle up. <laughs> and I do wonder if if uh, earlier in the season, there's uh, what the hawk, the uh, the non-eagle summaries are. are yeah, that could be pretty fascinating. Like, you know, that could be fascinating. Like you say, I, I was there once in the area, and I looked up, 
and I saw a Swainson's hawk just kind of go over. And it, you're in the mountains. And I thought, well, that's interesting. This, this really is a route for these raptors to go go by. Um, uh, thanks for that, that, you know, email. That was a lot of cool information, you know, about golden eagles. Superb. Yeah. Really good stuff. Yeah, we uh we did also have um remember we were talking band names, Al. Bird band names. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The Oleaginous Hemispingus Project, which Chris uh, our buddy Chris Bennish just uh posted a nice poster of. Uh, I feel I feel like that needs to be a t-shirt. Um but we got a nice note from Colin Clark as well. Uh, he wrote, funny you mentioned bands with bird names uh, and then went on to talk about House Martins because there's actually a great British band from the 80s called the House Martins. He said, look up yeah. their song, Happy Hour. You know the band, Al? Oh, yeah. know the House yeah. Martins. Yeah. Um, They've been split. The band split up. Now it's like the... You know what is it? Western <laughs> European House Martin and Asian House Martin. <laughs> God, can you imagine? Well, uh, Nepal House Martin, though that's that's a really rare band to see live. Oh boy, here we go. Well, uh, Colin also mentioned a couple other, you know, well-known bands with birds in them. Um, Flock of Seagulls. He said might trigger some people. Uh, certainly if you're Gen X, I think everyone will remember the hairstyle of Flock of Seagulls. Um, and, uh, of course there's the Counting Crows, the Yardbirds, and then also mentioned them Crooked Vultures, uh, which is a really good band. Um, and, uh, includes, uh, John Paul Jones and Dave Grohl and, uh, a band, probably a lot of folks would enjoy. Um, and then he, I think he also mentioned a couple of, he said, he said, uh, there's a band called the Bowerbirds that have a song called Marbled Godwit, uh, for, is sort of a double whammy. Um, and then he said one of his favorite bands is Half Man, Half Biscuit. And they have a song that mentions the Sanderlings in their lyrics. So not a, not a band on birds, but that they, you know, right. they actually mention Sanderlings. So, you know, Half Half man, half biscuit. If it was in the U.S. and you had to call it half man, half cookie, it just doesn't sound nearly as good. Like yeah, it doesn't, doesn't quite biscuit resonate. Sounds better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I want to. I want to mention too that uh, we we talked um, about the Lewis's woodpecker migration um, numbers in the fall some time ago, and it was uh, Nick Ampersy who who uh, sent that, that the original note. And I got to meet him and Kelly at, on one of the Pelagic trips. Um, and uh, they were super nice folks. And he, you know, after the Pelagic trip, Nick said, Hey, I, I was the guy who wrote you that, inf that, that note and how much they enjoyed the uh, podcast. And I guess uh, Nick and Kelly went fishing the day after they liked the, uh, you know, they liked the boat and went actually one day of birding, one day of fishing. And I thought that was pretty cool to actually just uh, take in the ocean experience like that, you know, visiting from the inland portions of uh, of California. So, yeah, it was nice to meet some real live meeting of folks who listen to this. 
<laughs> nice. That's awesome. You know, um, I also wanted to mention that um, the American Birding Association has a new president, um, Wayne Klockner. And I think it's going to be great for the organization. Uh, Wayne has a lot of really great experience um, and I think is a great fit for for uh, moving the ABA forward. So folks should definitely keep an eye on the American Birding Association in the in the coming uh, year or two here. There should be uh, some positive developments there. And I know Wayne is a listener as well. It was fun fun to uh, to chat with him fairly recently. And um, yeah, he uh, he's a great guy. And uh, I as I think we're all fans of the ABA and looking forward to seeing it uh, move ahead and prosper and uh, continue to do really good stuff. So, um, yeah, um, that was cool to have that, have that meeting as well. Um, and, um, yeah, shifting gears a little bit here, Al, I, I'm actually, I'm I'm sitting here right now and my cat is nearly on top of my keyboard. She is sound asleep right now, like. Usually it's the dog that's hanging out with me, but we're, we're dog sitting. Um, and, uh, so we have two dogs and the other dog and the cat, they're fine with each other, but they, you know, they make each other a little bit nervous. So I'm keeping the dog out while I record here. And the cat is just like pretty blase spread out here. Um, and, uh, every now and then has brushed up against the microphone. So hopefully, uh, hopefully, you know, it's giving a little head bump. So hopefully, uh, that, doesn't come through well, or cause us any trouble. If you, you have problems with the cat there, you know, you might just put it outside, you know what I mean? That's what, <laughs> yeah. What's the worst that could happen? Like, you know? What's the worst thing you could have? Just like let it out. People yeah. say they love to be outside. These yeah, cats. it's true. Yeah, they yeah. just love it. They really, they, you know, so, you know that's, it's natural, yep. you know, it's yeah. natural, you know, natural no, part of the environment. Don't, don't listen to Alvaro people, please. Whatever you do, do never, not never listen, listen to Alvaro guys. Crazy. You know, Spreader of misinformation. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, here's some more more misinformation. I got just a quick little thing of a bird that looks like a cat. The great horned owl, right? You know how they kind of look like a cat if you look yeah. at them right straight straight on you with the big old yeah, yeah. yellow they eyes. Get sort of the disapproving look and all. Yeah. Yeah, the whole thing. Yeah. There's this um for years, people down south have been saying that the Great horned owls in Patagonia and up into the sort of southern Andes sound different. They're small, small footed, really small talons. And so they sound different and we should split them. They've been called Magellanic horned owls. They've been called lesser horned owls. And we just got a new paper, uh, Emily Ostro and et al. about uh, the phylogenomics of great horned owls. And sure enough, the southern birds. Columpout is a different genetic group. So we have now genes, voice, morphology, and um, distribution that, you know, the two types almost come together in parts of Argentina and, and, and elsewhere, I think a little further north and probably in Bolivia. That um, And I think Ebert Cornell had made this split, but now it's sort of even more reinforced by this uh, this genetic paper on 
great horned owl. I like the I like Magellanic horned owl myself because that's how I learned it. But I yeah. guess the official name is Lesser horned owl, which yeah. to some extent is good because it is smaller. It's noticeably um, smaller. Yeah, very right. gray, very very gray, very gray, and they often nest on the ground. Yeah, which is kind of cool, you know, ground nesting things. Yeah, but um, their voice says the hooting, and then it has kind of a trill at the end. That's the that's the funny part. I could, you know, sort of rather than just hoots like the typical great horned owl. Sounds quite different. You're, you would recognize it as a great horned owlish, but then you go, hey, that's weird. It's you a boobo, clearly a boobo, but. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, all the eagle owls are boobos too and stuff. So, yeah. Know, snowy owl is as well. So, exactly. It is a diverse. So, there you go. I would like it if. Like Great Horned Owl is a great name, but I feel like if it was like American Eagle Owl, like the 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 general public, I th- suspect would be, you know, much more fascinated by that bird. Um, and I kind of I kind of wish that it was called an Eagle Owl, but rather than Great Horned, I don't know. Yeah, I can tell you're on the you're you're not you're not buying that argument. Yeah, yeah like Great Horned Owl is pretty good. It is. It's a great name. It's a great name. Yeah, but um, it's funny we have so many horned owls like in North America. Have you thought about this? There's no. Are there other horned owl like we have? You know, I guess long and short actually are throughout Northern Hemisphere, but we have eared. long eared. Yeah, you know, oh yeah, eared. They're eared. They're not horned. Yeah, and I was thinking of that. Like they were just talking about the ears. Yeah, and most owls you're not talking about their ears elsewhere. Yeah, and a lot of them do have yeah. ears. So, well, yeah. tough. Fake ears. Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, they all have ears, but they don't all have tufts. Some of them yeah. have There's the asymmetrical ears. There's the screech owl actually, long yeah. tufted screech owl. Just thought of that one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's crested owl. Uh, maybe there are other owls that the ear bits are are emphasized. Yeah, you shouldn't listen to me. You're right. <laughs> so, Al, one thing I wanted to raise. I was I was kind of winding up with my talk of my cat here to ask you to tell folks a little bit about the new member of your family there. Oh, you know, I like to keep my private life private. <laughs> <laughs> we have really? Bodie, the new puppy. Yeah, that's where I was headed. Yeah, I was excited, you know. Yeah, Yeah. tell us about Bodhi, man. He's a small dog, a baby dog. We call them puppies. Puppies, uh, okay, that's a good one. That's a good word. It's uh, cachorro in Spanish. Cachorro. Did you know that word? No, no. That's a hard one to pronounce. Cachorro? You've got a C-H and a double R in there. Cachorro. Mm -hmm, I like it. Um, So... Yeah, he's a chocolate lab of the English variety. You know, you know that whole division of American English labs, or no? Know? This is this news. They're just dogs to me. I, you know. Yeah, yeah. The uh, English labs are are bred to be kind of stockier, shorter, um, kind of a broader heads, and they're kind of real good looking. You- are you implying that American dogs are also fatter than Europeans? No, no, European they're skinnier. Dogs? Okay, they're oh, okay, skinnier. All right. yeah, All right. yeah, American, and in fact, they call them American, but you know, labs are 
Canadian to begin with. So it's heavens, you know. Yeah, there, there we go again. We've even stolen the their Labrador retrievers. Dog originally, um, and and this American Lab tends to be sort of skinnier. They're actually more high strung, and they're the ones that people use for hunting. So they're bred more for hunting and families. But the British Labs are more mellow, not not the kind that tend to you know jump up on you and smell smell you in an uncomfortable places. You know, you know how labs are. Oh, These are oh, yeah. a little bit more more mellow, but very good looking animals. So, you know, yeah, we're all about the looks here because mm-hmm. you know I I decrease the uh, average uh, look quotient here in this household. So, <laughs> <laughs> I I just saw your cats. Cat just Re- rearranged. Rump. Yeah, yeah cat just rump totally rearranged. Up. It's still basically eating up most of my desk here, but it just kind of like pivot. It stood up, stretched, pivoted, and then plopped down again. And it's now pretty much in a perfect circle. Uh, it's pretty impressive actually. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah, we've got this new dog, you know, um, and it's, it's pretty cool. Fun little guy. I have to say the pictures look very cute, Al. Very cute. You're going to melt some hearts. So you take that, take Bodhi for a walk, man. You got to be careful, careful out there. I know he's too young now for the full on walks yet, but yeah, soon when he can go and mix with the other dogs, you got to wait for the vaccine to kick in. You think he's going to be a good bird dog? Think he's going to, you think he's going to turn up like a, you know, a, 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 an, another Siberian Accenture for you. You should tell people about that, man. Yes, yeah. I still can't get over that. Yeah, I, I haven't mentioned that before. Well, I we find mentioned a it. lot. I don't of, know if we heard the story, but <clears throat> there's not much to the story actually. But it's it's a sad story. But that the truth is that you have to go out to see birds. You see, this is like the key. Hmm. You got to okay. go outside to see birds or look outside. Mm-hmm. You got to be and looking. Are, I would say you, you got to be in the game to win the game, right? You got to be right. looking. Yeah. So how do you get outside? A lot of people go birding and I often don't have the time to just go birding. So I, I walk my dog or do other things that are associated with the outside world. So you bring, I find you bring your binocs when you, birds. you bring your binocs when you walk the dog. Of course. Yeah. 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 I mean, I don't, I go running too, but that's binocularless, you know, so, and I found good birds running or walking the dog, some real good ones, like, you know, uh, Lacan Sparrow here a few years ago. I remember that one. Yeah. The first. Sladyback? I think it was the first spring um, red-throated pipit. You know, so it was like a red, you know, it was walking my dog, just that, um, oh, the long spur, you know. Um, Jess, I called her long spur some years ago, but when I was in Vancouver and I had to walk my dog and I had this little park, Vancouver, where I live was not nearly as good a vagrant spot as, as most, but I would do this route, not route. I, I do a route. Right. And, um, so I would go and do, do this specific route that I could, I knew how long it took to do it. And also. I would survey, so I was getting data. Um, and in fact, uh, it was like, I don't know, November, something like that. Nothing much is going on. And uh, 
I was walking with the dog and this crazy little bird popped up out of the shrubbery. And and I looked at it from the back and it was kind of all rusty, all rusty thing. And I said, oh my God, you know, that must be a rustic bunting. And I don't know why I had, like, I just knew it was something really cool because it was like nothing I've ever seen before. And it moved its head sideways and suddenly it was like, that thing's got to be like a warbler. And then I was just stuck there going like, what is that thing? And, uh, and I remember thinking, I've seen this in the book. I've seen this thing in the book. I had no idea what it was. I think, I think it's that Accenture, you know? And I, I just, I had no camera at the time. So, uh, with me, I just looked at it and made mental notes of where all the bits and pieces were. And then it started calling like a, like a, golden crown kinglet these high pitched notes so and i was like oh my god you know so i raced home with the dog in tow and i then i i just made a drawing drawing of the thing with all the details and the calls and all that and i remember that um i phoned people and it's like let's go back out there and try to find this thing and uh camera at that point and it was never seen again ever and the thing was that people were like, well, gosh, that would be the first Canadian record for this species from Asia. And uh, you don't have a picture, you don't have nothing. I have this drawing, you know, this, these details. And I do remember that what happened was kind of like just lucky. The week after, another one showed up in the interior of British Columbia. Like, and it was in a feeder and everybody went to see it. And they suddenly, everybody's mind went to like, hold on a second, maybe this guy's not so insane. This actually can happen. <laughs> and then the, my description of the call at that time was not something that you could just, you know, download a call of, it was, you know, there were cassette tapes of like, you know, birds of Soviet Union or something. It wasn't even <laughs> Russia probably at that point. It was so long ago. Maybe it wasn't that long ago. But in any case, the fact that the description fit what they were supposed to sound like when one of the one of the people in British Columbia who was reevaluating this record actually got in touch with somebody in Siberia and said, what do you wow. think of this call description? They were like, this is actually pretty good. That's kind of what they sound like. So then it was accepted because they thought like, I couldn't have known enough to lie. Right. Like, yeah, <laughs> that, you couldn't, you couldn't have well. like made that up and happened to get it right, you know? Right. So... So then they accepted it as the first Canadian record, but then they had backup of this, you know, photograph, the well-seen one, like a week or two later. But uh, it was walking the dog, one of the yeah. rarest birds I've ever found, but one of the most sad, in in a sense, in that it was never seen again. And now I think, um, knowing what I know about these birds, I think I looked for it all in completely the wrong way. I was looking in this park. You know, which was surrounded by houses. I mean, I was right at the edge of where the neighborhood hit the park. And what I should have gone and done is visited all of the houses, the yards nearby, and listened for this thing. Nobody looked for it in the yards or in the house. They all looked for it in this big park full of blackberry. And it just, uh, yeah, you're never going to see anything in that that park. But there you go. (laughs) Walk your dog. You know that there's the genus for that, right? Is Prunella. 
Prunella. Yeah. yeah. And there's a genus of plants also by the same name. Okay. I feel like it shouldn't happen. Well, you know why? It's the zoological code of nomenclature is just zoological, and there's a botanical code of nomenclature, and they're separate. So Mm. you have the same with ruddy turnstone, Arenaria. There's a plant, Arenaria. I did not know that. Okay. Yeah. So you cannot have the same name within animals, but you can have the same genus between a plant and an animal. Gotcha. Because we actually found some, it's it's called self heal, uh, and it's used like in herbal medicine, or it's called all heal. And I'm like, uh-huh. I was like trying to figure out what this plant was in our yard, and I was like, prunella. Like, I was like, this isn't a prunella. I know what a prunella is, and they got no business being here. Like, yeah, I'd love to find a prunella here, but you know, an eccenter. But anyway, I think I don't know. I don't know how many times this happens, but pru. It's Prunella D, the entire family, right? Yeah. It's the family. And I think it's one of the, I don't know how many families there are that have multiple species that they're all in the same genus. I don't think there are eccenters outside of Prunella, but that no. could have changed. No, I don't, I don't think so. I'll double check, but I think you you're know, right. But, but you know what I mean? Like if you have three or four plus species, you tend to, you know, get, Get multiple genera, right? A couple Obviously, of genera you know, involved usually. In this, yeah, yeah. But I, I wonder how many, how many families with five plus species have all of them in the same genus? Like yeah, a this question got, for listeners. Yeah, this the obviously the the Himalayas where a lot of these are all Eurasian, uh, mm-hmm. and the Dunnock. About a dozen. Yeah, the Dunnock is the famous one. Also has is famous for the crazy sperm competition. Um, you know, it's like a free-for-all yeah. mating season for those things. It's crazy. Um, but yeah, there's 12 species um, in that genus. And yeah, that's that's the family. That's the family. Yeah. I want to see the Altai. That's the one I want to see. Mm-hmm. So I like that name, Altai. Yeah, we, I don't think we saw that one, but we had, I think we had maybe four species or something on our snow leopard trips, uh, our snow leopard trip that Doug and me and some others did. Um, so that, the, the, the Alpine Center is kind of neat. Yeah. And, you know, like that is, I think, the only bird on my Spain list. I literally, I, like, walked from France in the Pyrenees into Spain, saw an Alpine center about a hundred foot, you know, inside of Spain, turned around. Well, I saw the Alpine center declared Spain, a lovely country, turned around and went back, but no passport did, stamp or nothing. Just like, did you plant the flag of Philadelphia there? <laughs> I did. I did. I actually, I just planted a, a Philadelphia Eagles flag. That was, that was, that was all that was really necessary. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, go birds, baby, go birds. Yeah. Is is the flag of Philadelphia two dudes holding hands? You know, yeah, brotherly love, little brotherly love. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that idea. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, both um, with beards. Yeah, that's for sure. Just, I associate Philadelphia people with beards. It, our, um, the, the flag of Philly looks kind of like the Ukraine flag. It's like a lot of yellow and blue. Um, oh, really? So there yeah. is a flag. Philly, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and it's two women on it. So go figure. Um, Anyway, now flags uh, don't have people on them, by the way. 
Yeah, it's true. It's unusual, you know? Yeah. yeah. What was the one that had the AK-47? That was, that's always struck me as sort of in a peculiar choice for a, for a flag, but. Yeah. Sort of like, don't come in here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need you. <laughs> yeah. I think they, I think they've since dispatched with the AK-47 on the flag, but. Uh, it was, it's always seemed a questionable choice to me. I don't know. The Nepalese flag is interesting in that it, it doesn't have the flag shape. You know, it's like two triangles. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that? That's I don't think so. Yeah. yeah, I think it's Nepal. Mm-hmm. Like most flags are flag shaped, but this one is sort of like, why'd you guys do that? You know, oh, I see what you're talking about. Yeah. Who made you made it, you want to do that? You know? It almost looks like semaphore or something, like something you'd string up on a boat, you know? Yeah, right. It's like bad weather today. Yeah. Oh no, that's the Nepalese flag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, sp- speaking of boats, Al, I think uh, we were going to uh, we we're going to chat a little bit about this crazy thing happening offshore there, where you're at with these these synthetic ramphus murlets, right? Yeah, murlets. M- yeah. So here's what's happening. We have these murlets, um, and you know, people might know about marble murlet and ancient murlet and all these other ones, but the ancient actually is in the same genus as these three. I sometimes call them maybe incorrectly, but due to their distribution, the Mexican murlets. Mm-hmm. And yeah. one of them, Scripses, actually nests mostly in California, but but the other two nest, you know, really off of Baja, California, in Mexico. One of them's the Guadalupe murlet, mainly in Guadalupe Island, and then the Craveris murlet, which nests in the southernmost um, sort of part of islands, you know, on the Baja, and also on the inside, you know, the Sea of Cortez side of, uh, of Baja. And these murlets are offshore little birds, so. You, Okay, if you've never done any boat birding, they're tiny, you know, and, and they're swimming around on the ocean and you have to find them, right? <laughs> when you, yeah. When you're out there to see them. And the only times you ever really have good murlet days are when it's pretty calm. Yeah. You, you cannot, They sometimes l- you'll find them. They literally keep a low profile, right? Like Yeah, low profile. What they do. Yeah. And... So you need these calm, calm days to find them. But also they're very specific as to the habitat that they like. And they like warmer water, right? That's why they're nesting down there versus the ancient, you know, that's way up north. And my, you know, is a cold water or marbles, you know, they're cold water. And they move northward after breeding to a really variable extent, and especially creveries, which has to sort of come around the, you know, the um, the tip of the peninsula in Baja to sort of make it up this way. Because I should kind of backtrack too and say that when these guys fledge, they fledge as little downy young. Really tiny, right? Tiny. And then they follow the, the parents. I assume it's the male, like in MERS, but I'm not quite sure. Um, and then then they swim north, you know, to, to better pastures, better um, foraging habitat habitat so it takes them a while to move north and they don't always get all that far north right because they, they they hang out where the food is this year the creveris murlets are moving north 
and it has not ha- happened like more further north than usual. Let's put it that way. It has not happened uh, since 2017 um, that this that this movement has sort of been this far north. And they started seeing a bunch of them in San Diego, and then they saw them sort of in off of Ventura County. And on Saturday, we found a few of them from Morro Bay. Which once you get to Morro Bay, you're actually outside of the real warm water part of California. So that's like the key. You're like, oh, if they're there, they could be farther north. So I suggested we would be looking for them on Sunday out of Monterey Bay, which is further north still. And boom, we found two of them there as well. Mm. So we think this next weekend, if the conditions still stay with warmer water and calm ocean, we might find them even further north off of a half moon bay or even in, you know, some more in Monterey. But it, it is, weird to me to think that this has not happened for so long you know like 2017 and i you know if we'd have to go back to the pre-blob period so 2014 to 17 was the blob that's when they kind of came up regularly uh-huh. before that blob period i think we even had several years maybe one or two years where none of them zero were detected in the u.s altogether so wow. they weren't even making it to San Diego. Huh. So, yeah, like they can actually just stay down in Baja and not make it up north some years. Most years recently, they've been regular, if not actually kind of easy to see off of San Diego. And now, you know, we've had this northward incursion, which which is, you know, the first in not nearly, I mean, not 10 years, but what is it? You know, it's a bunch of years. And so this is a big sign to me that this year we are finally getting that, you know, I don't know, you want to call it El Nino, you want to call it whatever, but there's a warm water northward shift happening event. And it may be separate from El Nino, maybe all part of El Nino. I'm not sure. I don't want to like, you know, it's almost easier to see this later when you kind of analyze it all, but it's, um, they're shifting north and in this calm water habitat we were in that was warmer water and calm we did see scripps's merlet which is usually the the typical one if we're going to find one out there and one of the odd things like a and i don't know if this is going to be bear out to be true for the rest of the season every single scripps's merlet was a singleton (laughs) right and usually we see them as pairs like these merlets are almost always in pairs and everyone was a single and all of the Creveris repairs. And I think, what's that about? Yeah. That's unique. And the other thing is we're going out there. We're very excited. We saw several, we had saw three species of boobies, four individuals, which is unheard of uh, almost this far north. And we started seeing fur seals, right? Fur seals are not rare here. They breed northern fur seal breeds in the Fairlands and increasing population and so forth. So and they they sit on the surface, kind of like sleeping. We started seeing fur seals, fur seals, fur seals, then getting better looks. And it's like, you know what? I think these are Guadalupe fur seals. They're not northern fur seals. They're the quite rare still but growing population from uh, some of the islands in Mexico and and they they've colonized some of the I think the Channel Islands. But uh, for a while, it was a uh, animal that was considered, you know, nearly extinct. <laughs> and um, 
we counted 70, um, actually, Eli Gross counted 70 fur seals. And now we assume that they were all, you know, Guadalupe fur seals. Yeah. And so you see, you see where I'm getting at. It's like all stuff from the same area. Everything. We didn't see a Guadalupe Merlet, which would have been very cool. Yeah. But boobies, fur seals from the south. And these Creveris merlets from the south, all moving north. And also an abundance of migratory Sabin skulls, like 800 plus. Man, so that's was, amazing. It was quite the day. But to me, from a biological birding slash funky thing going on, the movement of the merlets north is interesting. And it, it also means we should be really vigilant to find the rare Guadalupe uh, Merlet, which does come up regularly to the north, but it is often the furthest one offshore. And, mm-hmm. uh, it's just tough. It's a tough one. You know? Yeah. There you go. Merlets. Pretty cool. And the, those, cool. and let's see, is it Guadalupe is also of those three is an endangered species. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other two are vulnerable. So not, not, you know, I think they all number what below ten thousand total birds, right? There's not you're not talking about a ton of them. Right. And then yeah, and they're spread out over a wide area of the ocean and you gotta find them from a boat. It's, it's yeah. Like, yeah. The the one thing that is like a true mystery um that I was reading about recently. So we we had one Merlet that we saw very well that what had a tendency like it was a scripsis type merlet, but it had white coming up in front of the eye, some white. I was going to ask and you about that. That's a key ID for, thing for, for Guadalupe. Guadalupe. Yeah. A lot of white on the face. But this one was like in between. Like it was a, and what do you do with those? And it, it turns out with, that they those intermediate birds tend to be from the San Benito Islands, which are kind of central um, Baja California Peninsula sort of. And uh, the genetic work that's been done on them suggests that they're not hybrids. Like they, the San Benitos have Guadalupe and Scripsis breeding there. Um, they're slightly separate, I think, by timing, breeding <laughs> timing. But the genetic work that was done, I think they had three intermediate birds, two of them clumped out to be clearly. Guadalupe's, one of them clumped out to be clearly Scripses, and they had uh, an ability to figure out if these were hybrids, and none of the three were hybrids, but they were intermediate morphologically. So then that is the worst case scenario you can have for a field ID situation. Yeah. Basically, you cannot tell what that is. And you can't can't resort to saying it's a hybrid because at least the few, it's only three individuals that have been genetically looked at, were not hybrids. but we saw one of those birds so you know that's weird isn't it (laughs) that's yeah that seems like it could really muddle the picture um huh interesting but it is exciting out there this year now that we're you know we've sort of finished our Farallon trips and now we're doing these offshore trips and it we've been waiting to get offshore and it was like um boom you know yeah, really good. 
And uh, and I th- I think too that we're we're probably going to find a lot of storm petrels a little further north. We weren't in the best storm petrel places in the, this weekend, but this next weekend we're going to storm petrel places, and we'll that'll be of interest. See what what's out there. Nice. Well, um, we should probably scoot, man. Got to. Uh... We got to get to getting, but uh, I got to say I'm pretty stoked that fall really seems to be unfolding here. Um, started to see some songbirds this morning, and um, my some of my first migrant warblers. It's pretty awesome seeing uh, blueing warbler and Canada warbler and Baltimore Orioles starting to stack up and. Ruby-throated hummingbird numbers really starting to swell. They're buzzing around, being little jerks, chasing everything, chasing all the catbirds, chasing anything, yeah. sitting still. The ruby throats are really getting after it, and their numbers here at the feeders, their 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 numbers are swelling. But just everywhere, really getting to be a good time for them. So, I am, I am, I'm excited to be around for a lot of this coming fall, and looking forward to uh, to seeing a lot of friends over the course of the. Uh, the coming weeks and months. Um, so looking forward to that. Al, I think we should remind folks too, that they have an opportunity to take a proper wilderness adventure with the two of us Yes, uh, coming not, up. Not the, not the best trip for hummingbirds, but not, not a very good trip for hummingbirds. For seabirds <laughs> and yeah. all sorts of other beautiful places. Yeah. I, that all of that is true. And yeah, start planning ahead, folks. December of 2024, Al and I are going to be uh, doing this crazy cruise, a spectacular seabird extravaganza, but there's also parrots and tom tits and pippets and all sorts of cool stuff to be seen, um, including big, big numbers of penguins and albatrosses and you know, really a big chunk of the world's seabirds, uh, most of the world's albatrosses, species-wise, nest down there. This uh, this birding down under seabird spectacular cruise that we're going to be doing. Check it out. It's on both our uh, our sites on Alvaro's Adventures and at Hillstar Nature. Uh, and, and think about and, joining me and Al on that. Yeah, and while a really great adventure, keep in mind that it's on a really comfortable boat. You know, really nice. Have nice food. Ooh, nice wine after, you know, after you've been birding all day and so forth. So it's a, a comfortable adventure just so that you get. Uh, it is. Get, yeah, that we will probably see one. We will probably see zero, one or two other boats, maybe the entire journey. Typically, wow. typically you're out there and you're, you're really isolated in a, in a, in a beautiful arch, um, set of different archipelagos. Right. I just got a new book I'm going to check out. Uh, my friend Eric gave me um, on the region. I'll share more about that a little bit later on. But yeah. uh, but folks should definitely check out our Birding Down Under cruise the, to the Sub-Antarctic Islands in New Zealand and Australia. Uh, yeah. Some great birding to be done. Some of the best in the world, I dare say. Yeah. that's. I'm really looking forward to it. And yeah. uh, we will be uh, podcasting from there. You know, yeah. Assuming, yeah, we can record. Oh yeah, we can record we'll, we'll, we'll get can it. Send it out to people, but at that point, yeah. Then. Who knows? Maybe we'll be able to. Maybe we can send some files on and figure out how to post. We'll see. 
Yeah, if we were in the CIA, we'd be able to send our files out, but yeah, we're not. Maybe we'll have another one where where uh, George and Al have had one or two many beers prior to recording, like we did in Antarctica. That was uh, that was an interesting one. You know, I'm sure that folks a, will remember. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. Anyway, we were giddy. Yeah, we were definitely giddy. That is for sure. Yeah. Anyway, thanks, everybody, for listening. We will be back again soon. Hope to see you out in the field. Al, have a good one, man. All right. Bye-bye.